Hello and welcome. I'm Dandy Zhu, and you're listening to Digital Health Forward, a podcast dedicated to sharing the perspectives of healthcare leaders, entrepreneurs, and executives who are moving the digital health industry forward. Today, I had a chance to chat with Carolyn Witte, CEO and co-founder of TIA. TIA is creating a next-generation women's healthcare platform that is transforming the way that women interact with healthcare, both online and offline. Tia has raised $32 million to date, has a physical clinic in New York, and a team of over 15 physicians, physician assistants, RNs, therapists, and other treatment providers. In this episode, we explore Carolyn's journey as a founder, a leader, and a healthcare innovator. Hi, Carolyn. Hi, nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the show. I'm really excited to hear more about your personal journey as a founder, a leader, healthcare innovator in the women's health space. And to start, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and where your interest in healthcare stems from. What were you doing before TIA and how did TIA come about? Absolutely. Well, I've been working on TIA and in healthcare for four years now, believe it or not, which feels like It was yesterday when I just started, but also like a lifetime, depends on the day. Um, But I like to say that um, I didn't start out as a healthcare founder, uh, but became a healthcare founder. My background is not in health or healthcare at all. I came from the tech world, specifically Google, and where I worked on the brand and design side and really uh, learned how to build brands that cultivate love and trust, tell stories, build bridges between technology and the lay woman person, lay person, <laughs> and, you know, we say the lay woman, and, and really brought that playbook, non-traditional playbook around consumer brands and user-centric design and product development into healthcare, which uh, is amidst a rapid consumerization, uh, many would say. Um, but really, what really brought me to do that was my own story um, as a patient struggling to navigate care, which is a a common healthcare founder story that says, you know, people ask themselves, if I can't navigate healthcare, how does anybody deal with this? And very much had my own set of women's healthcare challenges that led me to that light bulb going off and uh, seeking to create a new system that works better for women, for me, uh, for my friends, for women everywhere uh, who uh, are interacting and experiencing with a healthcare system that really isn't designed for us at the end of the day uh, and deserve something better. How do you go from that light bulb moment to deciding, hey, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to actually take the leap, take the risk and start a company? What what was that push? I describe it as uh, insatiable curiosity, really, that got me to do that Um, and uh, an obsession with complex problems. Healthcare is kind of like banging your head against a wall every day. Uh, Some people love that. Some people hate it. Um, I love it. And every day I can't, I wake up and I learn something about the way the healthcare system works and can't fathom that it works the way it does. But instead of running the other way, I'm like, why can't we fix it? Um, and that's just kind of my personality. So I describe it as building healthcare company is like peeling back an onion. Uh, you discover one layer and another layer and another layer. And as I started to dive into the space, even before quitting my job, it was like that. And next thing I know, I'm super deep into it and can't stop thinking about it and kind of had that moment where I loved my job and one day I was going to work and, you know, normally would have been really motivated. And and next thing I know, I'm like, why am I doing this? Why do I have to mental model switch between women's health and what I was working on at Google, Mm -hmm. uh, which definitely wasn't boring, but suddenly was paled in comparison. And kind of when you can't stop thinking about it, you're dreaming, sleeping, you know, walking, thinking about this problem. 
I kind of know it's time to dive in in full force. Yeah. And why is it that, you know, given women are 50% of the population and we take on 80% of the decisions when it comes to healthcare, that we are still so underserved in the healthcare system and that all these problems make it so difficult for all of us to navigate care? Like, why is it that things were so broken? One of the things that I think motivated me to build TIA is, and I think has allowed us to build a successful venture-backed business in this space, is there's a dual, you know, moral calling, if you will. Um, I think most people would agree that women are, uh, men and women would agree that women are pretty radically underserved by the U.S. healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see this, this isn't, you know, subjective. It's, you see this in the data with the disproportionate outcomes women face and specifically certain groups of women, women of color, uh, the highest, we have the highest rates of maternal mortality in the developed world, lots of hair statistics like this, and the cost of care is rising. So objectively speaking, it's not working. But there's also, even if you put aside the morality, ethical issue here, there's a real business case to be made around why we should make healthcare work better for women. Um, and it's for the reasons that you mentioned, women control more than 80% of the U.S. healthcare dollars. Uh, we make, we are the predominant decision makers, both for our own health, We have more frequent and complex needs than men, um, but also tend to make the healthcare decisions for our families, our children, our partners, our parents. And if you capture the woman, you capture the family, as they say. So building a healthcare system that works for women is important to the health and well-being of women, of families, and of the economy. Um, And I think that kind of dual importance is one of the things that is very exciting as an entrepreneur in the space. I think as to why, you know, if everyone kind of accepts that women can, you know, women are economic powerhouses, if you will, when it comes to the health, when it comes to healthcare, why haven't we fixed it that yet? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer to that question is more complex. From my perspective, it's rooted in something somewhat basic, uh, which is that I don't think we even really understand what is women's health, um, and that the healthcare system thinks of women's health as something pretty di- fundamentally different than how women think about women's health. And that is, you know, creating, uh, let's say, an aligned definition is one of the core strategies uh, that TIA has taken as part of our uh, mission to reinvent the healthcare system in a way that works for women and for everyone else as a result. How would you say TIA defines women's health then? I would say TIA defines women's health in the way that women define it, which is not just reproductive health, not just your OBGYN but physical, mental, and emotional well-being. Uh, it's its whole person health. Mm-hmm. Uh, women can't be sliced and diced uh, based off of different specialties, med- you know, medical specialties or even medical school or different body parts or ailments. We are whole people uh, and all of our parts are connected and all of our health uh, is connected. And I think that is a very different narrative than the way the healthcare system was designed to serve women, which is very reductive, I would say more often than not. It tends to focus specifically on reproductive healthcare issues, even though we know that cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of women, for example, mm-hmm. or that women have anxiety and depression at twice the rate as men, of men, even though in Prozac, for example, was never even tested on women. So, you know, there's all these, you know, statistics that you can cite around these mismatched definitions or incentives um, where women are saying, I... I'm having this issue and trying to map their problem to a healthcare system that was designed uh, in it with a totally different mental model. Mm-hmm. And so here you have this personal experience in which you're very motivated to solve a problem that clearly needs to be solved. There's a business case, there's a clear market opportunity. 
you decide you want to start Tia. So what are, what are the very first things you do? Did you go start raising money? What was that like the very first days? Yeah, I didn't start raising money right away. I just kind of dove in, I would say somewhat blindly and naively. <laughs> in retrospect, it's kind of crazy. I think I was overconfident in certain regards and kind of thought I could figure this out. I was very product and brand focused. So I took a lot of what, you know, what I did at Google and sought to kind of take that approach to building a brand first and product second that, you know, in this kind of iterative user-centric design ongoing process to really like hack my way to figuring out what the product and the business was. So it's very different than approach, I would say, than many entrepreneurs who say, like, look at a market landscape and say, this is a, you know, X billion dollar business opportunity. How can I capture 5% of that TAM? Like, I didn't do that stuff. I didn't go to business school. Like, I didn't even know how to think. I wasn't a consultant. Like, I didn't know how to approach <laughs> that way. I thought, how do I build a real... I had a core insight, which said, women want someone, not something to manage their health. How can I build a relationship with women? What would that relationship be about? What, um, what would that brand represent? How can I make women feel something different about their health and then build all these different products and services around it and then figure out how to monetize it? So I did it very, very differently than I would say a traditional perhaps serial entrepreneur. Yeah. And I remember actually reading about how you interviewed all these women to hear about how they're currently hacking their way through women's health. What were some of the things you learned from those, those early interviews? Well, my favorite kind of theme is I would like, I would kind of go to my outer ring of friend of friends and ask them, like, can you introduce me to someone that I don't know? So I didn't want to interview my own friends, mm-hmm. you know, two people removed kind of thing about their experiences. And I would kind of bribe people to meet me for coffee in New York City and talk to me about their healthcare experiences. And usually it started off kind of, you know, a little bit, let's call it surface level. Like, you know, I'm Carolyn, I'm building a women's health, starting, you know, to build a women's healthcare company. I don't know exactly what that means yet. I'm just trying to learn and understand. And they would, you know, share a few kind of shallow tidbits. And next thing, you know, every single interview kind of went like this. This is probably TMI, or I probably shouldn't be telling you this, but and then there's like a sob story or like some like really intimate, you know, thing that they're sharing. And next thing you know, a 30 minute kind of user interview is an hour and a half conversation about wow. their, their own trials and tribulations struggling to get healthcare. Um, and it, I think the emotions surrounding these stories and the desire to feel seen and heard and talk to a stranger mm-hmm. uh, and think that they're the only one that had this struggle getting pregnant or the only one that like had this weird question that sent them on a Google, you know, spiral for three years or the only one to track their fertility in a spreadsheet and try and build their own models to predict their pregnancy or whatever it was, I heard it and, and right. started to hear these trends and one of the things that I think that said to me again was just the, the, the power of feeling heard and making women feel less alone in their healthcare experience. And could we build a platform, a brand that allowed women to share their stories? Like I had my own sob story or, you know, whatever. And I had a sense of what I wanted from healthcare, but I, in some of those themes I heard from other women, but I also heard all these other things. And so from the get-go, I, I really was committed to building a platform that could bring a diversity of perspectives and experiences to the forefront and help women collectively shape the future of healthcare versus any one woman, myself or someone else doing it in a silo. 
Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you heard lots of different issues from gynecology to fertility to pregnancy and all those things. So how did you decide where to zero in on, where to start? And what was that first product that you built? So um, the first kind of insight that I, I, I took from my own experience and from these stories was women need better health information. And I had been working for years at the time on Google search and the Google assistant and kind of saw this Google and your health thing and um, kind of thought, well, why don't I just build, um, that's like, Google's not a great answer to this because first off it's that I was very focused on privacy um, and the whole ad based mm-hmm. kind of notion of it. Uh, it felt creepy with respect to uh, women's health. So that was one thing. Second is not personalized. Um, and I, every woman told me a story of like scouring some mommy blog or a self-help forum or WebMD and finding these one size fits all answers and trying to apply that to their own health. So um, I thought like, what if we could build like a personalized WebMD for women's health type of thing? Um, a, you know, a Google assistant for women's health. And that's what we built. Um, and the premise was about giving women information, but also kind of having a voice, a tone, um, a vibe, if you will, that was, you know, your wing woman that was not your OBGYN, uh, but not your friend somewhere in between. It was kind of like our early users described Tia then as Tia is like your best friend who's in medical school. Like you can like ask her your health question. Um, and you know, she reads academic journals, but she's going to explain it to you in human speak and probably send you like an emoji with it. And that was kind of <laughs> voice and tone. And so it made women comfortable asking questions that they weren't asking their doctor, whether they didn't have a doctor, didn't have a relationship with a doctor, felt judged by their doctor, whatever it may be, women were coming to us with those questions. And so that was where we started. And we were, turns out we were really good at that. Uh, really, really good at getting women to come to us with their questions, giving them personalized science-backed answers with the right, you know, sweet and sass and science mix, if you will, and um, building these trusted relationship. And then we found that women would come back to us again and again and again, uh, not just about quote unquote women's health issues, which at the time I was defining much more narrowly around sexual and reproductive health, but a whole array of healthcare issues from mental health to, you know, weight management to like whatever it was, it was an out very much outside the bounds of what I had been told what women's health was. And so that was, you know, aha moment number one. And then the second thing was we saw women kind of hacking our app um, and taking um, Tia, you know, this, uh, you know, health assistant product with them to the doctor's office in the real world and messaging us in a care context in the waiting room. It was, hey, Tia, why do I have a deductible? Can you explain my copay in the exam room? It was, hey, Tia, which IUD should I get Uh, post-appointment? It was, hey, Tia, can you explain my test results? And so we were care coordinator, translator, navigator, all of those things. And that was aha moment number two. Women don't just want Tia before and after the doctor, but with their doctor. Uh, And they want uh, Tia to become the doctor and really to kind of change women's health. Information is great and essential, but if you give women information that they love and trust and then refer them into the healthcare system that they hate or don't have a relationship with, like kind of what's the point? Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we felt that really we needed to become the care provider to deliver what women wanted from us and what we thought was needed to actually improve health and well-being. Wow. What a journey. And so now you guys have one clinic in New York. Is that right? We do. And we're... Uh, on our way to opening up our, our next clinics uh, in a couple of other markets later this year and next. Very exciting. And since that first app, since that first clinic, how has the vision for Tia evolved at all? And what does present day online plus offline Tia look like? Yeah. 
Well, hopefully by this point, you've you, you've got heard the sort of theme here of launch and iterate and be obsessed with what, you know, listening to what your user, your customer wants uh, and evolving with her. Um, yeah. And four years in, that continues to be our guiding principle. And so we're responding constantly to what women want, what the market is telling us, and as well as sort of changes in the world uh, in payment models and uh, innovation and regulatory that create new opportunities to deliver care in meaningful ways. So uh, most recently, of course, we were hit by the, uh, how, who wasn't, uh, the realities of COVID-19 uh, turning our business and product on its head yet again. This was right after we closed our Series A financing. So it was interesting because it was right at the time when we were supposed to be just, I would say just rinse and repeating, but predominantly rinse and repeating what we'd proven. And next thing we know, it's like, wait, hold up, close your <laughs> physical clinic. You know, yeah. what's going to happen to your revenue? What's the future of your business? All these things all over again. And so we evolved uh, yet again. Uh, I would use the word evolve, not pivot very intentionally here because I think we, we actually made really some hard and strong decisions on not to pivot, to not pivot, if that makes sense. Um, and what we did was we we launched a virtual care platform. Um, mm-hmm. We clearly had technology and digital in our roots, but we weren't d- delivering quote unquote telehealth services in the healthcare sense of it uh, that you could bill insurance companies for. You right. can always chat with TR, chat with your care team, but we weren't doing billable virtual care visits. And the reasons we weren't doing that were, were twofold. One, um, until you know March 17th or something like that, you couldn't bill insurance companies, uh, at least not in New York State, uh, for virtual care services and get paid for them. So that was one reason. Second, there was a lot of very restrictive regulatory that prevented things like practicing across state lines and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And third, women weren't asking for it. Of all the things that women wanted from Tia, no one ever said, if only could Zoom with my doctor. It just like wasn't something that women were wanting. And the next thing you know, all of that changed. And so we responded by, we had this new opportunity to suddenly actually practice virtual care in a way that with lax regulatory and new opportunity for virtual reimbursement at parity to in-person services. So the sort of human translation of that is if you treat a UTI or in person or via Zoom, you get paid the same amount. Uh, and that was not true eight months ago. And so if you say if you zoom out from that, you can see why adoption of virtual care by providers was so limited because it was effectively going to come at a cost to their revenue. And so it's a very classic example of misaligned incentives in healthcare that suddenly the incentives were aligned and virtual kind of skyrocketed. So that was a big opportunity for us. Um, We also rolled out new services, specifically mental health, which was something we wanted to do pre-COVID, but accelerated in response to what we saw our patients asking for us uh, during this pandemic uh, at the epicenter of it all in New York. We saw 400% increase in mental health-related messages on our platform. uh, So really had a moral and I would say like clinical imperative to address that need. Um, and it, it actually came from both our patients and our providers who were coming to Felicity and I and saying, you know, I, I'm uncomfortable. Like we women, our patients are, they need very serious mental health support. And we're not able to provide them. Please help me help give our patients better care. And that's what we did. Um, and so, you know, eight months into COVID-19, um, we've reopened our physical clinic in New York City. Um, But didn't go back to the old way of doing things in terms of, you know, deciding not to pivot. We decided not to launch a virtual only platform, 
but instead launch and scale uh, what we call a virtually integrated platform. Mm-hmm. And that means um, we are actually the only uh, real you know, venture-backed women's healthcare player that delivers healthcare that's virtual and in-person and connected. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that why we think that's important is we think it's the right business model, but we also believe it's the right clinical model. And while we, I've been personally, you know, blown away by how much care can be delivered virtually, over 50% of our care is now delivered virtually. You still can't get a pap smear on the internet. You can't get a mammogram <laughs> on the internet. You can't deliver a baby on the internet, like to state the obvious. And for clinical quality reasons, which is really our North Star, we believe the right thing for women and the right thing for business and reducing costs of care is a virtually integrated platform that's all about delivering the highest quality care in the most convenient, cost-effective way across the care continuum. And so now at TIA, that's online, offline, online, offline, online, offline. And that's a model we're investing in scaling. I'm really excited to see how this, this care model plays out further in this women's health space. Has it been difficult to manage that coordination between online and offline? And what sorts of technology or you know, analytics have you guys had to build to support that? Absolutely. I think it seems from the outsider looking in, like standing up virtual care should be really simple. You just take the same doctors or nurse practitioners who are delivering care in an exam room and give them an iPad or computer and they can, you know, (laughs) they can do it. Well, that's like the easy part. Um, All the stuff around it, around, you know, like insurance validation and virtual consents and think about all that stuff you usually do in a waiting room and like all of that stuff has to be built. So we built all that and have, you know, automated check-in and virtual waiting rooms and all that sorts of stuff. But the more interesting thing is actually about how you change, figure out what service should be delivered virtually, what should be delivered in person and how you pass the baton from provider to provider. Um, And so what we actually have now is where, you know, we have, you know, in the early days, we had our New York City care team delivering, uh, in-person care team delivering virtual care. But we're now shifting to a model where we have a centralized virtual care team that will support multiple markets. And so what you have is an extension of something we've been doing at TIA for a long time, which is what we call team-based care. And team-based care is a shift from a world where every person has a quote-unquote doctor who is theirs. And you're like, I see Dr. Smith and I go to Dr. Smith whether I need to have an operation or get, you know, a sinus infection treated or UTI treated. It turns out that world is very expensive uh, to deliver care that way and not efficient. Why should you have an OBGYN who is a surgeon treating a UTI or treating strep throat, right? Right. Uh, And so it doesn't make sense um, financially or really clinically. And so what we've been really focused on even pre-COVID was what we call a collaborative team-based model that allows you know, a patient to get the high touch experience that they want through a 360 degree approach where you have a whole team that works together to manage your health end to end. So that team may include a primary care provider, an OBGYN, a nurse practitioner, a therapist, an acupuncturist, a care coordinator, nutritionist, and all of them have all those people now are actually scattered across the country. Some of them are in person, some of them are virtual. And we've had to build a platform that enables all those providers to work collaboratively together to mm-hmm. share context, to be in sync, to have your health data. It's almost like a Google Doc for your health. Uh, it's kind of, we built the equivalent of Google Suite for doctors that allows that context sharing, that those baton pass moments to be smooth instead of drops. And that really is kind of the magic of the TIA technology integrated into the operating model that is so key to making this virtually integrated platform work. 
Wow. Yeah. We hear a lot about how important patient handoffs are to care and outcomes. And so it's, it's really cool that you guys built this in-house. So we hear a lot about how sh- there's a shortage of supply when it comes to a lot of these care providers. Have you guys found it difficult to recruit for these clinicians? And what has their experience been like working yeah. for TIA versus you know your typical hospital? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think su- supply, labor supply is a massive issue in healthcare, particularly mental health. Um, we have, because of our team-based model, we really focus on mid-level providers, uh, specifically nurse practitioners, uh, and empower them to work at the top of their license with collaborating MDs, whether those are family practice physicians, internal medicine doctors, or OBGYNs. So we do recruit MDs, of course, but the we I would say we have it, we're successful at recruiting nurse practitioners who want to take a more patient-centered approach to care, practice integrative medicine, be empowered to work at the top of their license. So um, that has been, I would say, a differentiator for us in the market uh, is able to attract that type of provider. I think the bigger the bigger challenge for us has been on the mental health side. Um, we literally cannot scale our mental health product fast enough. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the retention on it is so high. We provide both talk therapy and integrated medication management for anxiety and depression by our prescribing primary care providers which is um, a collaborative mental health model proven to de- be the highest quality, lowest cost way to deliver mental health care. Uh, and we're able to do that by leveraging different types of mental health providers, all licensed, specifically licensed clinical social workers, and um, so LCSWs and LMSWs to do the talk therapy piece, mm-hmm. but have a collaborating prescribing physician who can prescribe and diagnose. Uh, and that is a way that we are able to increase access to mental health care and keep the costs down. Um, a therapy appointment at TIA right now is $70 for your first visit and $90 after that. We'll be taking insurance soon for therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we take insurance on the um, for the medication management side. By contrast, a 45-minute visit with a psychiatrist in New York City is $400 an hour. So um, it's just like night and day from a cost and access perspective. And so that's an example of thinking about collaborative staffing as a way to address these supply shortages, but also cost. Interesting. And right now as a member, I pay like a monthly fee. Is that right? Or how does, how does the business model work? Yeah. So the, the models, uh, fairly similar to one medical, if you're familiar with them, um, mm-hmm. membership based model. So $150 a year or $15 a month. We're actually the lowest priced membership model in the market. Uh, and that $15 a month covers the benefits and perks that go beyond what a typical doctor's office offers and what insurance pays for. So things like same-day appointments, unlimited messaging with your care team, community educational events and support circles, refer seamless referrals into specialists, a dedicated care coordinator, all these sorts of things. And then once you're a member, you can use your insurance for services. So um, insurance covers your gynecology, primary care visits, uh, things like acupuncture even, depending on your insurance plan, and soon mental health. Um, so that's how uh, we make money through a combination of those membership fees, which is a relatively small part of our revenue. And the bulk of it is through the clinical services insurance reimbursements. Have you considered also going to the self-insured employers or the health plans like One Medical has? That is something we will likely do in the future. Truthfully, today, we've just been too small. We've been, um, when we first opened in New York, we were, we, you know, we were at capacities from the day we opened. You know, we had a wait list of thousands of women um, trying to join T in New York and are, we're working to scale as quickly as we can. 
virtual is one of those things that enables us to scale faster, which is really exciting by shifting a large percentage of services online, we can effectively serve more patients per box and open up more boxes faster. Uh, virtually integrated boxes, if you will. So I think with a greater footprint uh, and reach virtually and in person, uh, going straight to employers will be uh, a thing we'll be doing in the future. How do you think about that trade-off between expanding the product offering to go into other parts of women's health versus going to other channels and scaling the current core product? It's a constant trade-off. I think we have opportunity to scale on multiple uh, vectors. So First is markets. Um, even within markets, there's always the trade-off of like, do we just own, try to own New York and just right. open perhaps as much the market versus going to many different markets and finding that balance. Then there's the service offerings within TIA. We offer, you know, in revenue expansion as well as like sort of clinical quality. So today we do gynecology, primary care, mental health, acupuncture. We're expanding to get into pregnancy over the next year uh, with integrated uh, pregnancy support. So things like everything from doulas, nutrition, lactation counseling, uh, pelvic floor PT, all, you know, trimester zero, trimester four care to continue to grow with our patients. That's a big focus for us. And also very important to employers and health system partners and payers, given the cost of pregnancy and the very poor outcomes we see in that space. Um, and then there's the, you know, the scaling with partners, the self-insured employers, the payers, the health systems, there's so many the retailers, there's so many different ways. And so um, we're constantly trying to kind of find the balance between those and figure out, you know, sequencing, I would say is very important in this business, given the mm-hmm. I think, opportunity that we have and the the huge need in, uh, in the market. How do you think about these partnerships from a strategic standpoint? Like are providers more direct competition than they are perhaps partners? Or how do they think about those conversations too? So we have this motto that... Um, you know, TA aims to build bridges, not walls. I think understanding what we are great at and differentiated from existing specialists in a market or health systems and how we can partner with them is very critical. Um, we talked a little bit about aligned, the importance of aligned incentives. Well, the I think the problems we face as a healthcare system are too great for any one person or party to fix. And figuring out how you can build a product and a business that in our case is oriented around what women, the consumer want, but also benefits and meets the needs of payers, providers, employers, the other constituents of healthcare that control largely how care is accessed, right? Um, That's really essential. And so for us, figuring that out was very important in our first year of offering the TIA clinic. And I think we've cracked that in a way where we know what we're really good at. We're good at experience. We're good at outpatient, primary, OB care, OBGYN, the things that a traditional hospital system isn't very good at. And so if we can focus on what we're really good at, which is being that digital, physical front door of the healthcare system, mm-hmm. building a brand um, and experience that women deeply love and trust, engaging women in their healthcare, preventative health and outside in outside ways, and having that care coordination to play to pass those batons both between TIA, within TIA and between TIA and other providers, that's a really sort of great place to be. And so um, we're really excited about the ways in which we are working with health systems. Uh, Today, we already work with Mount Sinai in New York City. We're in their clinically integrated network. Uh, We'll be working, uh, announcing more sort of deeper integrations with other health systems next year. Very exciting. I love that motto of building bridges, not walls. As you reflect on this whole experience from four years ago now, what have you learned about yourself as a leader? How would you define success for TIA moving forward? 
Success for Tia um, is, in my mind, is like a very evocative thing. It's a healthcare system that just works. And when I say just works, I mean a few things. I mean, one in which costs are going down and not up, uh, where clinical outcomes are improving, not worsening. Uh, where healthcare, um, you know, is as simple as I'm a woman, I have a need, I turn to T who takes care of the rest. Uh, and women aren't sort of trying to match their ailment or, you know, condition to a specialist or an insurance company or, you know, all of that stuff that makes healthcare so impossible to navigate. Um, that to me, a healthcare system that just works for women is one that works for everyone. Uh, and that to me is what we're trying to create. I love that. And for all the entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs out there listening, what pieces of advice do you have for them? I think find that problem that like that you're obsessed with, with the many layers of the onion that you can't like stop peeling back. And if you just, um, you know, starting a company is painful in many ways and <laughs> really, really hard. But if you're and I think I always look at some serial entrepreneurs sometimes and I'm like, I don't know if I could do that. Like there's, it's, I love building a company, but it's the, it's the problem space that I'm so obsessed with that insatiable curiosity that gets me through the darkest days, the most banging your head against the wall days it keeps me going. And so I think that finding that problem that you're obsessed with versus saying like, I'm going to start a company, what problem should I solve mm-hmm. uh, is kind of my biggest advice. Yeah. Not just starting a company to start a company, but exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. This was really inspiring and um, we're really looking forward to see what you and Tia accomplish. Thanks for the thoughtful questions and for having me. 